this morning in searching for something that would be encouraging to you and helpful to the body of Christ, I turn to one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 119. And I, the simple outline is that I plan to do this in two parts, so you have to come back this evening. This psalm is a treatise on the Word of God, God's holy scriptures, His revelation to man. But it is also a prayer and a praise of the psalmist to God. And so I plan to take the two parts this morning to look at what some have called the rich and precious jewel of the Word, and this evening look at the heart, the mind, the soul of the psalmist in the Word. Before we begin, let me read from Psalm 119, the first octave or the first stanza, first eight verses. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness, they walk in his ways. Thou hast ordained thy precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep thy statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all thy commandments. I shall give thanks to thee with uprightness of heart when I learn thy righteous judgments. I shall keep thy statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. Let us pray. Our Father, we do ask that we might obey and, and know that which was read in our hearing this morning from Leviticus 19, where God tells them that these are the ordinances and the statutes that he has given to them, I am Jehovah, that you are the Lord, that you are the Almighty. It is for our good and for your glory that we come to know you and hear your voice and respond to that which you have said we pray that we might be as the psalmist. We might have that psalmist heart to seek you in your word diligently and that we might come to know you and to worship you in spirit and truth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There have been various names and titles given to this psalm by theologians and commentators, one called it the paradise of the doctrines, that it was for him a place where he came to know the doctrines of God, his revelation to man. Both Matthew Henry and one of his sisters commented that their father, Philip Henry, advised meditation on a single verse of Psalm 119 every day, that in one year you could cover the psalm twice. And he said to them, quote, this will bring you to be in love with all the rest of the scriptures. Meditating on these verses, one a day, that old uh, vitamin, you know, daily vitamin, daily, daily reminder of the scriptures. And is it any wonder that Matthew Henry went on to write a commentary on every book of the Bible, because he followed his father's advice, and he fell in love with all the rest of Scripture. 
Another commentator has called the psalm the storehouse of the Holy Spirit, a place where we are met by God's Spirit teaching us, guiding us, helping us. J.I. Packer, in the introduction to his book, In Step with the Spirit, which was written to, I think, a commentary on part of Galatians, walking by the Holy Spirit. He tells what he is going to do and how he is going to unfold the scriptures that we might understand more of the work of the Holy Spirit. But he says, before you begin, before you go into what I have written about these things, I recommend that you study and meditate on some, Psalm 119, that you understand that our, my desire is that it comes from the heart of God his revelation, his scripture to man. And again, in here we see the poet's heart, the psalmist's heart. There are many who ascribe the authorship of this psalm to David, even though it has no inscription to that. But some accuse the psalmist, whoever he is, of worshiping the word rather than worshiping the Lord. But I think if you were to even read a cursory reading of the psalm, you would see that that, that cannot be the case. He is worshiping the author of the scriptures, the author of the word. If I were to pick what I think would be a theme verse of the entire psalm, of the entire 176 verses, I would probably point to verse 38 where the psalmist says, Establish thy word to thy servant as that which produces reverence for thee. He was not worshiping the Bible. He was not worshiping the word itself. He is worshiping the author of that word, the one who spoke these things and gave them, as that which produces reverence for thee. Isn't that why we come to the scriptures? Isn't that why... We would read is to know him, to hear his voice. I mean, when you find an author that you like, don't you go to the library or now you just click on Amazon and you look for other books by that same author? Why? Because you want to hear what he's written. You want to hear what he has to say. Or in my days as Martha and I were courting, you know, I would long to, to, in the days when some of us wrote letters, real letters, I would long to go to the mailbox and find a letter. Why? To hear from her. What are you thinking? What are, it's going through your mind. And even now when I get a voicemail, you know, I always, I recognize that voice. Why? Because I've come to love that voice, to enjoy that voice. I want to hear what you're thinking and saying most of the time. Derek Kidner says of the psalmist here, this is true piety, a love for God not desiccated by study, but refreshed, informed, and nourished by it. And I had to think about that. What does he mean by desiccated? It's not desiccated by his study. And we used to get, you know, 
packed with electronics. You get that little bag, right, of the desiccant in there. It's something that takes the moisture and, and keeps the electronics from, from having the rust or the moisture in them to affect them. And, and you always have to tell your kids, that's not a salt packet. You know, throw it away. Do not eat. But what does it do? It takes the, it takes the moisture out of the air and keeps it, preserves it. This is the opposite. What he's saying is that there are times when people study the scriptures and it becomes to them dry and they become listless. It's like just a, a burden. And here the psalmist, his love and delight for God is fresh. It's vibrant. It's deep. It's not dried up. It's not a shriveled, you know, what does Paul say? Knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. His, his love was built up because that knowledge was of God and His works and who He is and how He deals with His people. And you can just hear Paul, can you not? In Romans 11, it's almost as the psalmist would echo his thoughts there. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. That's what the psalmist is focused on, is on the word of God. God's word as a way, as a means of hearing God's voice on a daily and moment by moment basis. Now, most of you know, as what I call the nuts and bolts of the psalm, it's divided into 22 stanzas for the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And, it, and some have called it the alphabet of divine love, or the Christians, and this is kind of wimpy to me, the Christians' golden ABC. But it's not just A is for apple, B is for ball, and C is for cat. It, it, each verse of each stanza starts with that same letter in Hebrew and it goes through as a way, as a hook and a memory device to help not just children but, but all ages to get the Word of God, to understand it. The one that I could point to now in English that might give you a sense of how this would work would be the fifth stanza. If you look with me at verse 33 and following. The one that has the hey, which is that letter in the Hebrew, he starts with imperatives. They're called causative imperatives. Teach me, give me understanding, make me walk, incline my heart, establish thy word, revive me. They're, they're things that, this is the prayer of the psalmist to God. Do these things, do these things, do these things. And you can imagine, even in English, we could probably think of, of a, a letter that we could begin every word in there with the same letter to help us remember synonyms for teach, for give, for incline my heart, all of these things. And so it's a, it is a memory device. But what is its goal? Not, again, not that we would just claim that knowledge or, oh, you know, I've done this or I've memorized this. But it brings me to a place of reverence and love and obedience to the Lord my God. The psalmist here, in one of these verses, gives... The phrase that you've heard perhaps often, the unfolding of thy word gives light. 
the unfolding of that word, the opening up, the opening of the door gives light. And that is what we would desire to see here, is how do these words, these synonyms for the scriptures, and these stanzas, how do they help me see the light? How do they give me light? I don't know if doctors Hartman and Failer in their Sunday school class on the Reformation and helping us see how the Reformation affects us in the way that we think about Scripture and doctrines and worship now. But a story that I read, and I find out, I guess, if it's true, is that there was a friend of Martin Luther who was a witness, uh, perhaps at his debate with Eck, over sola scriptura, over the papacy, over all of these issues that, that came up. And he watched Luther as he was listening to Eck. He was scribbling on a pallet, a piece of paper. He was writing things. And this acquaintance of Luther was, was curious. What is he writing? So at a break, apparently in the proceedings, he kind of snuck a peek at what Luther had written. And down that page, he had written more light, more light, more light, more light that he wanted God to enlighten him so that he could speak the truth of God, that he could impart, not, not just win the debate, but glorify God by producing the, the light or reproducing it so others could see. So at the risk of sounding somewhat encyclopedic, I do want to talk about these synonyms that are here, and seven of the eight synonyms that are given for light are in this first stanza that we have read this morning. But how do they give us light is what we want to focus on. Yes, what do they mean, and how do we see them? I, I can remember in my seminary days, I had to do student preaching, unfortunately. Um, and apparently in one of my uh, sermons that I did for my professor, um, I, I used synonyms, uh, three or four or five synonyms in a row to try to emphasize a point. And I thought that they kind of gave a full-orbed understanding of what I was trying to say, but it, it came up in the critique. You know, you, you use five when one would do. Don't do that. But here, what we see, the psalmist uses the word law and testimonies and commandment and precepts but he is not repeating himself. Every one of them gives us, it's like, again, that rich and precious jewel, that diadem that we spin and we see a full-orbed understanding of God's Word. The first of these that you'll see in verse 1 is those who walk in the law of the Lord. It comes from a word that means to teach or direct or guide. It's, it's really a rule of conduct is what it means. But it's, it's here as God's law in general. It's his teaching and his revelation. And we're reminded of what James says. That, that revelation is not just for our interest. It's not just to, to something that we, we find enjoyable to do, but it's for obedience. He says, to everyone who looks into the perfect law, James says, let him not be a forgetful hearer, but what? A doer of the word. That they would actually be an effectual doer. 
that the word would have an effect not in only in the heart of the hearer, but one who acts upon that word. Several of the commentators say the, the word is not, uh, it gives light, but the light is not there to bask in. It, it's to walk in obedience to. I remember the singer-songwriter Keith Green in the late 70s, one of his songs, and he, he, he was a passionate Christian, but he came down hard on other Christians. He says, you know, why is there so much darkness in the world? It's because the Christians are asleep in the light. We say, unfolding of your word gives light, but what do we do with that light? It is to walk in, in obedience to it. In the next verse, he talks about the testimonies. Blessed are those who observe his testimonies. It comes from a word that simply means to bear witness to. God is testifying. God is revealing his law. It's kind of strange to think about, but God is a witness. And he, it's not us witnessing him, it's God being a witness to us. His standards are high. He's the one who sets the bar. His warnings are frank. And what does it say of him in Scripture? He is the one who is what? Faithful and true witness. It's light for us is that we can depend on God because he is the witness to his own glory. He is the witness to his own righteousness and holiness. In verse 4, we come to the word precepts. Thou hast ordained thy precepts. These are particular instructions. It comes from a word that's to place trust in. It's something that has been entrusted to man by God. And what, is, what do we understand about God in this? that God is a careful overseer of his people, that he looks closely into the situation. If you want to think of it this way, God is the one who sweats the details in our lives. Yes, it's his sovereignty, but it's also his compassion. He remembers our frame. He knows that we are dust, and he has ordained the things that come into our lives for his glory, but also for our good. His precepts are entrusted to man. In verse 5, the psalmist says, Oh, that my ways may be established to keep thy statutes. Well, it's not statues, but you can kind of think of it that way because it is a permanent thing. The statutes of God are, it comes from a word to engrave or inscribe. It means it's a definite, prescribed, written law. It's the law of God written on the heart of human flesh. It's the inmost spiritual, moral will written on the heart. But it's permanent and it's binding. That is the work of the scriptures. That is the work of God's statutes. And then we get to a word in verse 6 that you're probably expecting to come first because people think of commandments. And he says, I won't be ashamed when I look upon your commandments. And it, is, it does mean command. But again, what is behind the commandments? When someone gives a command, they have authority. And who is the ultimate authority but God and God alone? 
It means that God has the power to convince. God has the power to persuade. But fundamentally, it also means that he has the right as God to give commands. And we ought to be as Augustine was when he said famously, command what thou wilt, but give what thou commandest. That God has the authority, but God is the one who gives the energy, the strength, the will and desire to obey those commandments. In verse seven, we read that the psalmist learned righteous judgments it comes from a word to, to govern, govern or determine. It's God's judgment, God's judicial or legal sanctions. And God is a governing God. He governs here. The, the focus on these judgments is God as he who judges man and man. That, that he has given things to man to, to govern ourselves. To, to know how we ought to treat one another, how we ought to exist together. That he's determining the rights, duties, privileges of man. Growing up, I remember people saying of someone else, they would look and say, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. But I think the psalmist is showing us here that those who are heavenly minded will be the most earthly good because they understand God. They understand the relationship that God ordained between man and man. And they will be able to communicate and to exist in society because they understand that man is made in the image of God and he is their maker and creator. Now there are two other words that are used here, not so much in this first stanza, but farther on, and they are general words. The word word, which comes from to say, and it's the most general form of God's revelation to man. But it comes down, I think that we could say that it is God's truth. His truth stated, his truth promised, his truth commanded. God speaks and he is not silent. God has revealed his promises of blessings to his people. God has revealed his commandments, his precepts, his ordinances, his statutes. God speaks. And the final one of these synonyms is the way. When the psalmist says, show me the way. Spurgeon, in his commentary, says that this is the assisting grace of God through Christ our Lord. This is really looking at that path of life, that rule of conduct. It reminds us that Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the one who is the Word, is he not? The Logos, the Word of God. The writer to the Hebrews 
tells us in his very first verse that God in various ways spoke through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the way. Listen to him. Isn't that what God said when Jesus was baptized? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so are we like the psalmist? Have we asked God to establish his word to us? Why? That we may be in reverence to him. And we may hear the voice of his logos, the word of God. What is the character? What is the character of this word? We've talked about it. We've talked about the light that it can bring, but how does the psalmist depict it for us? Again, if you'll excuse the somewhat encyclopedic methodology here, I want to look at some things from these stanzas that stand out to me that have been a source of encouragement to me as I have meditated on the Word and the meaning of these things and the heart of God to have us be people of the book. In the first stanza, and most of your Bibles will have these, the Hebrew letter uh, pronunciation or a a way to say the Hebrew letters of the alphabet. You'll recognize them. We say alphabet, it starts with olive bait, um, A-B. The first one, the first stanzas, one through eight, it's the blessings of those who walk in the way of Scripture. That whole stanza seems to have a theme, and not every stanza has a theme. I, I believe at least a coherent one that says, yeah, this is what the whole stanza is. But here, I think it's, it starts with the blessings How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. We we often just pray, oh, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord, bless mommy and daddy, bless my children. But how are they blessed? One of the ways in which they are blessed is when they walk in the way of the law, when they seek him with all their heart and to know his word. In the second stanza, the, the bait Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to thy word? With all my heart I have sought thee. Do not let me wander from thy commandments. It points to us the great irony of the Christian life, does it not? The more we become slaves of Christ, the more freedom we have. The more we know God and His ways, the more freedom there is to live, to to not be worried about wandering, to not be worried about being caught out or going the wrong way. He, He says, how can I keep it pure? Not by saying no, 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 but by looking at the Word and guarding it according to His Word. His ways, His commandments. And what does that bring? The third stanza, the gimel, if you will, verse 24. 
Thy testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. They, they are men of counsel to me. It is, it is like I have a room full of those who would guide me, help me to know how to run my business, how to teach my children, how to do things in life. There is truth, and in that truth there is stability. And in this world of where everything seems to be on shaky ground, where no one seems to have an anchor for their life, they are my, their testimonies are my delight. Why? Because they are my counselors. In the next, the Dalit. It's the source of enlargement of his vision. Look at verse 32. I shall run in the way of thy commandments, for they will enlarge my heart. I, I think about that often. There are people who die of an enlarged heart. I would like to die with an enlarged heart. I would like to die with a heart that has been enlarged by God himself. Because really what it means is that he enlarges our vision, but he enlarges our wisdom in that vision. What I, the light that I see, I have wisdom to apply it. It's the same thing that was granted to King Solomon. The scriptures in 1 Kings tells us that Solomon was gifted by God. Not only he asked for wisdom, right, as his special gift, it says great discernment. He was enlarged with discernment. And so, again, it opens up new vistas for life. That we don't have that little, you know, I can't quite see, where, where we, we're so afraid to, to take a broader view of things, that we kind of put blinders on, because I, I don't want to disobey. And he says, no, I'll enlarge your heart that you can see and obey. There are those who say that the psalmist was a young man. And I, if you come back tonight, I'll say no. <laughs> Because I think what we see is a progression here. We see a man of experience, a man who, is, who has been afflicted, a man who has been derided, a man who has, has been slandered. And throughout this psalm, there are cries to things. And there is a, he is a man of perseverance. In the hay section, verse 33, Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statues, and I will observe it to the end. That he will be... A finisher. And in the Vav section, verse 45 and 46, and I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. I will speak of thy testimonies before kings and will not be ashamed. This is not something that he internalizes only. This is not one of those people who says, I worship my God, you worship your God. He will testify to what God has done in his life. He has internalized it, but he will also externalize it. Mercy and salvation are not for him alone, but he knows that God has others that he will bring to himself. In the next section, the Zion, it's just full of the words hope and comfort, hope and comfort. Here is a man who knows 
that his comfort is in God, that his hope is in God, that it is not in his scholarship, it is not in his effort, it is not in grabbing his bootstraps and trying to yank them up, that his comfort and hope is in God and God alone. Because he says in verse 7, 57, the next section, the Lord is my portion. There is no one else for him. This is a man who is firm in his belief. And he is also mature. Look at verse 66. He says, teach me good discernment and knowledge for I believe in thy commandments. Here is a man who is learning to think theologically. That is one of the prayers that I have year by year, month by month that I would learn to think theologically, learn to think in my understanding of who God is. And isn't that, again, the writer to the Hebrews says, the word, the meat of the word is for the mature, for those, he says, who have been trained to discern good and evil. It's a training book. It's a book meant to help us to understand the false teachings that Chuck was talking about last Sunday evening, those who would tend to sway us with every wind and wave of doctrine. How do we know? Because the scriptures teach us to think theologically, discern, and to know. But he also is real, a realist. He looks around and sees affliction in his own life that he has had Bad things happen to him, but he understands that it is God who does these things. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. He knows that it's not just random things that happen. These floods in Houston and hurricanes in Florida and fires in California are ordained by God's hand. And we say, why do bad things happen to either innocent or good people? God afflicts people for his glory and for their good, for his righteousness and their holiness. And the psalmist recognizes that. These afflictions, these things that may come upon me are in your righteous judgments, good for me. God is faithful, and God will continue to do that to develop his people into those who would glorify him. But he does ask in the midst of these things, Look at verse 81. My soul languishes for thy salvation. He is afflicted. There are things that he is longing for, but what does he long for? The whole stanza, revive me, revive me, revive me. What does revival mean? Give me life. Do you want to live life to the full? Do you want to live life as God intended? That's a prayer. Revive me according to thy word. Some have called this psalm the Old Testament and New Testament garb. And I think in verse of the 12th section, Lamed, in verse 91, he says, They stand this day according to thy ordinance, for all things are thy servants. All things are the servant of God. 
He uses all these things. He sees that the word is deep and it brings him to an understanding or in the words better than mine of Paul in Ephesians 3 to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth. Paul prays for us and all believers. And the psalmist begins to see that in the word, that four-dimensional aspect of the word, that it brings him to new places and opens up new vistas for him and new things. And we're reminded in Psalm, in the verses 101 and 102, the effort, the diligence that is required of us as believers. This is not a psalm for the non-believer. This is not a psalm written by a non-believer. This is a man who recognizes, again, what we saw in the Holiness Code, our reading from Leviticus 19 this morning. Do these things. Why? I am the Lord. Peter says to his disciples, be more diligent to make certain about your calling and his choosing you. That is the job of the Christian, to make more certain of his calling, of his choosing us, of his selecting us, of his, his calling us and having us hear the voice of Jesus Christ, our great shepherd. And the psalmist picks that up here in his exclamations as his what William Cooper calls his protestations. He's not arguing against something. He is loudly affirming and avowing, I will follow these things. And the classic verse, and it, I cannot say it any better, but do we not need what he explains in verse 105? Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We live in a world of darkness. Isaiah said that. Those who walk in darkness shall see a great light. How do we, is that light shown for us? How is it shining for us? How do we know these things? The word is a lamp to my feet. The word is a light to my path. It is not the path. It is not the end all. It is the light to show us how we ought to walk and where we ought to walk. The word has had a profound effect on this man, whoever he was. Look at verse 20, 120. My flesh trembles for fear of thee, and I am afraid of thy judgments. Literally, it, the scriptures make his hair stand on end. Okay, Or as our southern neighbors would say, it gives him chill bumps. Does, when you open the scriptures and have your devotions... When, when you hear it read here at church, does it make your hair stand on end? Does it excite you that much? Does it give you that holy and reverent awe of God? It, it reminds us of the writer, again, to the Hebrews. He, he gets done and he has a string of therefores in chapter 12, but finally he just says... And these things we ought to do with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. I think he is a one like the psalmist whose hair stands on end when he reads the scriptures because it is the word of Almighty God. 
And yet the man understands, I've got to live here every day. I've got to work. I've got to react to people. I've got to interact with people. I have to deal with people. And in Psalm, in this uh, verse 128, he says, I've esteemed thy precepts. Everything concerning them is right. Therefore, I hate every false way. He's, he's learned that discernment, to discern the good and evil. But he's come to a point where he says, I hate falsehood. I hate that which is against God. And then he's come to learn in 137, righteous art thou, O Lord. He's tested, he's tried God, he's proved, righteous are you. Holy is your word. Holy is the things that you have said. And yet, again, this is a man, I think, who lives real life. In verse 150 and 151, I think we see that he is very much like you and me. He says, those who follow after wickedness, draw near. They are far from thy law. Thou art near, O Lord. All thy commandments are truth. Those who are wicked, those who oppose you, those who hate you are coming near. But Jehovah is near. Jehovah is near. He is with me. There is a comfort here. He, his protestations are, I can't get enough. I can't hear enough. I can't read enough. I can't draw close enough. But you are near. And please revive me according to your word and call me to be your own. And he comes to that place in 164. Seven times a day I praise you, oh God. And nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for thy salvation, O Lord, and do your commandments. He walks resolutely. He is in awe of God. He's in a place of peace. He's in a place where he worships God and he knows God even in the midst of these afflictions and in the midst of a place where the wicked are approaching nearly to him. And where would I have us end up this morning? Verses 171 and 172. Again, the personal and the corporate, the individual, internal, and the external. Let my lips utter praise, for thou dost teach me thy statutes. Let my tongue sing of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteousness. Let my lips utter praise, individual, personal. I know my God, but let my tongue, 172, sing praise. It, it literally means antiphonally, and in response, in a corporate setting, let me add my voice with my tongue to those who praise you, because I learn of your righteousness in your commandments and your precepts and your statutes. Again, it is a prayer of praise and a prayer of protestation, avowing that he will follow the commandments and statutes of God. But it also is something that ought to call us together, call us as a body to be people of the word, to be those who would not only individually, but also corporately as a body of Christ, 
You go back to that, verse 30, 38, the center of this psalm, that we would cry out, establish thy word to us as that which produces reverence for thee. Let us pray. Our God, we ask that you would build us up in our most holy faith, cause us to have this kind of delight and energy and excitement about the word, but also, Father, we pray that we would not worship the Bible, but we would worship the God of the Bible, that we would know you, that we would draw near to you, that we would long to hear your voice, that we would would jump, that our, that our bodies, our minds, our hearts would react as we hear your word read, as we hear it preached, as we heard, heard prayed. And Father, as we read, that you would be glorified, you would be lifted up, you would be the one to whom we look. We ask that you would do this for the building up of your church, the body of Christ, that she would be that bride prepared for that great day when you come again to give you glory and honor. We ask that you would do it, that you would do it, O oh Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you please rise for the benediction taken from this psalm. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. <laughs>